Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. All right, everybody, we're back for another episode, and this one I think will be one that most of you will want to tune into. Of course, when we are out on the trails with our dogs, nobody wants anything bad to happen, but life happens. Sometimes we trip, sometimes we run into something that we're not expecting. And so today we're going to kind of help you guys prepare for some of those unexpected moments because preparation is definitely key and having a plan to know what to do when things go awry can help really make sure that you and your dog are getting the best. So today I have Dr. Taylor Johannigman joining me for this conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So for our listeners, before we dive into this very juicy concept of trail first aid for dogs, can you give yourself a little bit of an introduction? Absolutely. Um, So I have been out of veterinary school for about two and a half years now. I graduated from the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. I currently am practicing as an emergency medicine veterinarian. Um, I have also had some experience in shelter medicine and general practice, as well as being volunteer veterinarian at the Can-Am 300 race in Maine. Um, And I've been participating in dryland races since 2019 with my own dogs. Now, I think it's awesome that this is kind of a, uh, I would say, a newer introduction for you into the sled dog sports. What was it like then going to that race to be the veterinarian? Did it kind of open up your eyes to anything new that you weren't expecting? Absolutely. Uh, It's definitely a different world from the dry dry land race world. Uh, They're, they're doing much longer distances. Uh, The, the dogs are, you know, your sprint dog is going to look different from your distant dog and the problems you encounter with the distance dogs is going to be different from things you might encounter with your sprint dogs. And uh, just in general, some of the veterinarians who've been doing these races have been doing Iditarod, Can-Am, Bear Grease for for years and years, and they have just a wealth of information and a lot to learn from them. And obviously, those dogs in sprint, the sprint world and in the mid-distance and long-distance world are quite different as well from the pet dogs that you probably mostly see in your general practitioner and your uh, emergency vet world. Absolutely. Um, the, the dogs we see in sprint and mid-distance, long-distance, they're athletes. Um, the the problems they encounter are much different from the problems um, I encounter in general practice. You know, we worry a lot more about things like heat stroke and um, some exertional rhabdomyolysis, things that you definitely don't see. You see heat stroke sometimes in general practice, but the other things very rare. Then the body condition score system is very different between general practice and your athletes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really cool that you can see both sides as a practicing veterinarian and then also experience a little bit of the sprint side with your own dogs and racing and recreational mushing. Cause I think that that gives you a nice kind of whole approach on this idea of taking care of our dogs, because some of our listeners do have purpose bred dogs and some of our listeners do have more along the lines of pet dogs and they enjoy these sports recreationally. So Before we kind of dive into our trail first aid and some of the challenges we might encounter and what we need to be prepared for, we do want to make a little bit of a disclaimer on this episode, right? Absolutely. So when it comes to veterinary medicine, we as veterinarians require a veterinary client-patient relationship to prescribe medication. So I'll be going over general 
advice, you know, general things to have in your toolkit. Um, I might mention some names of medications you might want to have, but as far as specific dosing and things like that, I recommend you go talk to your regular veterinarian to get, you know, tailored recommendations for your pet. So this could be a nice way for people to kind of start learning about the process and start maybe taking some notes, and then they could take those notes into their general practitioner to kind of get some more specific guidelines for their dogs. Precisely. So obviously some things that we encounter on the trail are more emergent than others. And we're going to talk a little bit about how to kind of build a first aid kit that somebody might have, uh, you know, a bulkier one at their car, and then maybe a smaller one that they take out with them. Before we do that, can we talk a little bit about kind of some first aid injuries um, and what some injuries might look like that somebody might see from their dog when they are out running on the trail? Absolutely. Let's do it. So I know that you mentioned, um, you know, in our, our list of discussion today, we've got some, some things that we can encounter like bugs and wildlife on the trail that can cause some injury. So let's kind of first address that. Um, talk to us a little bit about some stings or bites and kind of what problems those might cause for our dogs. Yeah, absolutely. So um, insect bites, definitely a possibility when you're out running in the woods. Um, the biggest thing we worry about is anaphylaxis or an allergic reaction to the bite. And what we see with anaphylaxis is, you know, respiratory distress, difficulty breathing, face is swelling, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, excessive drooling, weakness, fainting, all the way up to seizures. Um, and unfortunately, there's not really a good in the field treatment for this. This is a get to your vet as soon as possible situation. Um, don't use an EpiPen if you have an EpiPen for yourself. That can cause a lot more issues in the dog. This is just get to the vet as soon as possible situation. If you have time to snap a picture of whatever you think stung or bit them, do so. But also don't waste time looking around in the dirt for a tiny bug when your dog's having trouble breathing. So this might be something where if we are going to some local trails um, that we might have kind of a list of local veterinarians. And this is something too, that whenever I'm traveling with my dogs, I always do look up local veterinarians and emergency veterinarians, just in case something were to happen. I've already got that information. And these allergic reactions can happen pretty quickly. What kind of time frame are we looking for, you know, when you start to see these symptoms from the dog? Usually it's pretty acute or pretty immediately after the insect bite. Um, if they're not going to go into anaphylaxis, you know, I'd expect after 20 minutes after the bite, if they're not struggling, then you're probably in the clear. Um, but I'd still go try to find a vet. You know, you still will probably see some facial swelling, hives, those sort of things might not be life-threatening, but better be safe than sorry. Um, especially if they're swelling around the face, you don't want it to progress to the point where they can't breathe because they're so puffy and swollen. Absolutely. Now, some of our uh, kind of injuries, we'll say on the trail, are a little less emergent than that. They might be some minor things. Um, one thing that mushers will always tell you is to check the feet of your dogs before and after every run. And one of the reasons this is recommended is because we can have some injuries to the pad of the dog's foot and some toenail injuries as well. Yeah, so injury to the, the pads and the nails can be pretty common. They can be very bloody. It bleeds quite a bit from any of those locations, but generally they're not going to bleed out from an injury to their foot or toe. Um, so while it's very bloody, it's not necessarily you need to go to the ER and panic. It's certainly something you want to keep clean, keep wrapped, um, and you know eventually get 
some pain medication antibiotics for it, depending on the severity. Um, but it does, it's very alarming how much those things can bleed for sure. Um, but do not panic. The, the, the torn toenail will not cause them to bleed out. And I, our other kind of main category, I would say, of, of injuries tends to be maybe the soft tissue injuries that, that dogs can get while out and running. So talk to us a little bit about those. Sure. Um, so soft tissue injuries is a, a pretty broad topic. It can range anywhere from, you know, they got a scratch somewhere to they ran into a tree and now have a stick sticking out of them. Um, so, you know, the, the main thing is to, if there's a lot of bleeding, try to figure out where it's coming from. Um, if there's something sticking out of them, do not pull it out. Try to stabilize it. You know, if you have to wrap it, you know, in a kind of like a donut bandage, keep it stable and get them to the vet. Um, but in general, don't pull things out that are stuck in them unless it's like a thorn or something very minor. But if there's a, a full stick sticking out of your dog, leave it there, let the veterinarian take it out. Um, but, but generally speaking, for soft tissue wounds, you wanna assess, is there bleeding? How much bleeding? Can you stop the bleeding? Um, you know, it, it, dogs are a little bit different from humans in that it's harder to apply tourniquets. So it can be quite difficult to get a tourniquet on them. Um, but I think it's a good idea to have gauze with you. Um, also a good idea to have a muzzle with you. Even the nicest dog can bite when they're, when they're ouchy. So if there's ever an emergency on the trail, um, I think it's a good idea to have a muzzle with you just so you can safely evaluate your dog. Or even if you need to carry it out or something like that, just to keep everyone safe. Yep, absolutely. Even the nicest of dogs can uh, express their communication quite clearly with their teeth if they're not feeling good. And we certainly want to keep you all safe if you are having to care for that dog. So some of these uh, medical concerns, we'll say, uh, require a little bit more immediate care than others. Some of the things that you mentioned were overheating. Um, you mentioned seizures and neurological you know, symptoms. I know we also can keep our eyes out for bloat depending on, you know, when we're feeding and running dogs. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, the difference between when somebody might need to seek medical intervention more immediately versus being able to assess something on the trail and then head to their vet. Absolutely. So you know your dog best is what it's going to come down to as far as the tools for assessing your dog and figuring out if it needs to go somewhere emergently um, the best tool is you you know your dog um, the things that the dog needs to live is it needs its airway it needs to breathe it needs circulation so you know can it breathe is it able to stop panting you know when we talk about heat stroke one of the things we look for is you know, they're panting heavily, are they able to stop to sniff something or drink water? If they're unable to even stop panting for that, then, you know, you, you may want to consider that this might be an emergency. Um, you can check gum color to help you assess for circulation or the ability of the heart to get blood to where it needs to go. Um, something we check is called the capillary refill time or CRT. And, you know, usually your dog's gum color is a nice bubble gum pink. Um, and then when you gently press on the gum with your finger, it blanches white. And then when you take your finger off, it should turn back to pink within one to two seconds. If it takes much longer than the two seconds, then we start to worry about the circulation not maybe not being its best and something bad going on. Um, 
or if the gum color is so white that you can't assess a CRT, that's certainly another sign that something is, is probably awry and you need to seek veterinary attention. Um, let's see. Heart rate is going to be kind of hard to use on the trail, especially if your dog has been recently very active. Um, certainly if you know, you think your dog's off, you stop, let it cool down for five to 10 minutes and your heart rate's still racing at like 200 beats a minute, then that might be a sign that something's off. You can assess heart rate. Usually, you know, most of our, our dogs who are in these sports are pretty lean. So oftentimes you can kind of just feel their heart rate on their chest. They also have femoral pulses, which um, your regular veterinarian can kind of show you how to assess. It's kind of hard to verbally explain how to find those pulses. Um, but you can assess the heart rate that way. Um, and then mentation, again, you know your dog best. If your dog just is acting off, you know, not responding well to you, acting stuporous, things like that. Any Anytime our mentation's really off, I get very concerned very quickly because I don't mess around with the brain. If the brain's feeling bad, it needs to be evaluated. Yeah, a lot of those neurological signs that we can see from dogs are more obvious. Um, it's hard for a dog, you know, oftentimes our dogs are pretty stoic when they're not feeling well or when something's wrong, but neurological signs are usually quite obvious. And so it's hard to miss, we'll say. Um, the owner will be aware that something is off. Yes, and neurologic signs are, are rarely something that's a, oh, you can wait on it. They're, they're usually something that means something's pretty, pretty bad going on and you need to see a, a veterinarian for it. Now, one thing that we haven't talked too much about is bloat. Um, and obviously people who run their dogs are quite cautious about when the dogs are eating uh, in association to exercise when they're drinking. Can you talk to us a little bit about what bloat looks like and kind of what that is and why, why we need to be aware and concerned of that? Absolutely. So bloat is a condition. It's technically called gastric dilation and volvulus, and it happens um, when the dog's stomach flips over on itself and essentially uh, cuts off circulation, causes, uh, you know, sometimes can entrap the spleen and, and basically causes uh, hemodynamic shock, meaning that they can't get blood where it needs to go because it's all getting compartmentalized in the stomach. You know, it's often seen in our deep chested dogs. Um, so a lot of, you know, the houndy looking dogs you know, the classic poster child for this is German Shepherds, Dobermans, things like that with really deep chests. They seem to be predisposed to it. Um, and, and essentially what it looks like is unproductive retching, the dog's super uncomfortable, panting. Um, their, their stomach's often distended and, and very tense. And, and that's why it's called bloat because they look very bloated. Um, and it is an emergency. It's a life-threatening situation. They can quickly decline and, and pass away from this condition. And um, the, the fix for it is essentially surgery. They need to go to surgery, get the stomach unflipped. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes they can have some pretty extensive damage from the stomach being flipped. But the sooner you get to the vet, the, the, usually the better the outcome. 
So some of these concerns definitely need to be seen by a veterinarian sooner than others. Um, you mentioned checking that CRT or capillary refill time to look for circulation. Uh, you mentioned, you know, a racing heart rate even after the dog has cooled down. And then neurological signs or signs of, you know, extreme distress or bleeding from the dogs. Are there any other kind of lists of symptoms that you would add to this list that maybe if somebody saw or recognized they would, it, it would kind of prompt them to get to the ER with their dogs sooner rather than later. Another thing to look out for is if there's bleeding that you just can't get to stop, especially if it's from, you know, if it's from a distal extremity from like a toenail or something like that, less worrisome. But if there's a wound, you know, the thorax or the abdomen or the neck, and it's just not stopped bleeding, then that, even if the dog looks okay, they can compensate for quite a while. Um, until they can't anymore, and then they go downhill very quickly. So if there's any bleeding you notice, um, even if the dog looks okay for now, they, they can go downhill quickly. Um, let's see. Temperature is another thing you can assess. Um, you know, rectal temperature is going to be your, your most accurate temperature. It kind of depends on your dog if that's going to be feasible or not. Um, but generally, dog's temperature should be between 100 and 103, we're getting to 104, 105, um, you know, we, and after a run that might be okay, but if, again, we're taking cooling measures, you know, you're cooling with some, some room temperature water and the temperature is still not coming down, then an elevated temperature that you can't get to come down needs to be assessed as well. So with the temperature concerns, um, that's something that obviously um, anyone new to the sport will probably hear quite a bit about, you know, running dogs in the summer, um, running dogs when temperature and humidity is high because overheating is definitely a life-threatening concern if we can't get those temps down. Um, you mentioned, you know, using room temperature water. Um, what are just kind of quickly some signs that uh, the dog might be overheating or beginning to get too warm? And what are some measures that people can then do to help that dog cool off safely? Absolutely. So heat stroke is one of the topics that goes between general practice and sport dog medicine. It happens in a lot of dogs. Um, what we generally see when it first starts is uncontrolled panting. And when I say uncontrolled panting, I mean, you give them a minute or two to cool down and then Usually if a dog's not having heat stroke issues, you know, if you offer them water or they're able to stop panting to sniff, you know, they're able to momentarily stop panting. Um, often dogs who are starting to go into distress will be panting uncontrollably, lots of drool. Um, you know, they just have to lay down to catch their breath essentially. Um, so that's kind of how it starts. It can, you know, full-blown heat stroke can progress to collapse. They can start to bleed spontaneously. They can start to get seizures to, you know, as, as it progresses, which we certainly don't want to see it get to that point. So if you're concerned about your dog going into heat stroke, uh, you know, definitely stop whatever activity you're doing, get back to a, a cool shady place, whether it's your car with air conditioning on, indoors, what have you. Um, you can start cooling down with room temperature water place in front of a fan. Um, you don't want to cool them down too quickly. So that's why it's, it's recommended not to use like ice water, things like that. And it's also not recommended to put rubbing alcohol on the paw pads and ears. I know that was a recommendation 
um, floating around for a while, but it's it's actually not recommended to put rubbing alcohol on them to help them cool. It's just stick with the room temperature water, um, a fan, air conditioning. Um, and if they're not, you know, getting getting better, if they're getting worse, is to head towards the vet because heat stroke can quickly become life-threatening. So now that we kind of know some of the main concerns of what we might see on the trail or encounter on the trail. Let's talk a little bit about what we can do as dog owners to help be prepared for some of those circumstances. So let's talk a little bit. um, First, let's talk about some first aid kit items and kind of what um, you pack in a first aid kit and what you recommend that some of our listeners have. Sure. Um, So what I like to see in a first aid kit you know, I do like to have a digital thermometer available. Um, I like to have gauze, vet wrap. Uh, again, the muzzle is very important to have. Um, I like to have non-stick gauze or telpho pads, um, just because it's a pain to get normal gauze off of a, a, an injury that has blood and then it's ouchy for the dog and a pain to get off. There are some like quick clot gauzes that can help stop bleeding quickly. It's on Amazon. Um, they use it in human combat medicine. So that's, I have not used it personally, but it's something I'm thinking of adding to my kit um, in a just in case sort of way. I'd have some, I like to have some either betadine or iodine that I can dilute down to use to wash out wounds um, just to try to keep them clean until I can get, um, get them started on antibiotics. Benadryl is a definitely a good thing to have in your, your bag to hold you over. I will say that Benadryl is not going to like make them go from super puffy to normal in one dose. Um, allergic reactions can often take like 24 to 48 hours to fully resolve. Um, this past summer, my little Sheba got stung by something unknown and was puffy for like two days afterwards, even on Benadryl. Um, she didn't need any sort of emergency care, but she just was puffy and uncomfortable even on Benadryl. So just a caveat that don't expect miracles to happen <laughs> with Benadryl. Um, but it's a good tool to have to kind of hold you over, especially if you're, you're not sure if it needs to go to the vet or not. Um, it gives, buys you a little time sometimes. So obviously, uh, we're going to have all of our listeners speak with their vets about dosing for those medications. Um, But some of those tools, you know, like muzzles and thermometers might require both some dog skills and some human skills prior to using them for the first time. Um, You know, as a professional trainer, I always recommend that even if we have that friendly dog and we don't think we'll need it to work a little on muzzle training, because the last thing we want to do in an emergency situation is add stress by then having to muzzle the dog if they don't know, you know, what that is and, and kind of how to accept that. So definitely a little training ahead of time with the muzzle. And then for the human side of things, we need a little training kind of on how to take a temperature or, you know, how to evaluate or assess those stats. Um, do you mind giving us a little overview about if somebody were to start looking at gum color and start taking temperatures and start feeling for pulses, what would be within that normal range for a dog? Absolutely. So temperature for a dog should be between 100 and 103. Again, if it's right after a long, hard run and they're a little over, you know, 104, recheck again in five minutes after cooling as long as they're doing well otherwise. Um, if you start getting to 105, 106, then that's that's brain fried region and that needs to be addressed. Um, so that's temperature. 
pulses, again, it's going to be kind of hard to assess a normal, you know, because it depends on the size of the dog, the activity level of the dog. For your average 50 pound dog, I expect their heart rate at rest to be around 100, but if they're super athletic, it might be less. If they're less athletic, it might be more. Um, so I would just practice getting your dog's heart rate at rest at home so that you know what's normal for your dog. Um, that way you have that, that point to go off of when you're in the, in the field and not sure if, if that's normal or not. That way you actually do know if it's normal or not. And then let's see, the gum color. Again, bubblegum pink is what we're aiming for. Um, if they are, if the gums are white or blue or purple or any other color, then you know definitely would warrant closer inspection of other signs. Um, you know, white is definitely very concerning, as is blue. Any color but pink, I generally find pretty distressing. Um, so I think gum color is a really good thing to evaluate. Again, practice at home so you know what some dogs' gums are lighter than other dogs. So just start randomly looking at your dog's mouth and, and seeing what looks normal for them. Um, that way you have a good baseline to go off of. And that information to, you know, practicing at home and getting that baseline that can help people when they're out on the trail with their dog. And also when they're then communicating with the vet about what might be normal and what they see within that dog. Absolutely. When we are packing those first aid kits, um, are these all things that you keep in the car or is there anything that you do bring to the trail with you? So I probably need to get better about this because as I was putting together notes for this podcast, there were some, I don't normally take anything out on the trail with me because I normally am doing a very short loop because all of my training grounds are like one mile loops. So every one mile I'm back at my car. Um, generally, you know, if I was start to start to do longer runs, I think, again, the things I would want to have with me would be that muzzle um, and a way to get the dog back to the car. Because, you know, if you have any sort of emergency, your ultimate goal is going to be transport to the vet. So your goal should be to, your goal should be to spend as little time in the field as possible. You want to stabilize your dog but then get it to your car as soon as possible. So I, you know, prioritize having a muzzle so you can safely transport and having a way to transport. So throughout bike drawing, you know, how are you going to get back to your car if your dog is unable to walk back to the car? Are you able to carry your dog? You need some sort of like sling in your backpack just so you have that ability to take your dog back to the car. Um, and then in the car, I would keep like you know, maybe out in the field, I'd have some sort of bandage just so I could quickly cover something that's bleeding and give me time to get back to the car. In the car, I'd probably have more of the intense things. Um, you know, if I get back to the car, the bleeding stopped, then I could be like, well, I have time to like sort of address this, clean it off, figure out what I need to do. If you get back to the car and things are not better or getting worse, then my recommendations generally just pack up and get to the vet as soon as possible because you know, without even being a veterinarian in the field, that's what I would do is just get it to a, a medical facility as soon as possible. Because even if you have all of the skill set and knowledge that you need to kind of assess something, you don't necessarily have all of the tools that you're going to need or all the medications that you're going to need to really support Correct. that dog. Correct. So as people are heading out on the trails with their dogs, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think that people should know? 
it's hard to build like a general catch-all first aid kit because it does depend quite a bit on what your distances are, how many dogs you're running. Because if you're out running one dog and something bad happens, then it's pretty straightforward. You take the dog, you get back to the car. But what if you're out running a team of like five dogs? How do you manage the five dogs plus your dog that's having an emergency? So, it, you know, your, your kit's going to and your plan is going to differ. Um, I guess another good thing to think about is just having a plan, like just thinking through, okay, if something happened on the trail, what am I going to do? Because you could have a first aid kit with you, but if you don't have a plan for how to use it, then you're going to slow yourself down. Absolutely. So if somebody were to start to notice that something were a little off with their dog while they're on the trail, is there kind of a certain checklist or... Um, order of events that you would recommend that somebody kind of go through in order to, to to determine if this is something minor, something major, something that needs to see the vet? Yeah. So I think, you know, generally people who are involved in these sports are very knowledgeable of their dogs and are very in tune to their dogs. So notice even the smallest things that seem off, which is awesome. Um, so if you notice something seems off, you're not sure what, then, you know, I'd recommend stopping the run and, and just kind of getting back to your vehicle and assessing again. Um, if you check the gum color and that looks good, if their breathing is slowed down by that point and it looks normal, um, their heart rate has come back down and they're looking better then you know, maybe it's not, you know, emergent needs to see a vet right now. Um, but at least that way you're back at the car and, and if things have gotten worse, then you have a way, way out. i I just generally don't recommend kind of powering through. Trust your gut. If you think something's off with your dog, then it's not worth the risk of something going wrong on the run. Just go, you know, trust your gut. It's it's better safe than sorry. Now, I know that you have included some links for us, which we will put in the show notes for our listeners. Um, is there any kind of preface that you want to give any of those tools um, for our listeners? So there is one link to the ABMA or the American Veterinary Medical Association, which is a very trustworthy source. So, you know, I definitely recommend checking that out. It kind of is a general emergency first aid. It's not specifically for like sled dogs or working dogs or anything like that, but it, it's a very good resource um, as far as just medically sound advice goes. The um, VCA hospital website has a lot of really good just general information about some of the emergencies we talked about, like insect stings, trauma, things like that, that you'll be able to dive into more detail about if you're interested. Um, there is another resource that was developed for working canines like police dogs, military dogs. It's more trauma-based than what you'd hopefully expect to see in sled dogs. Um, but there's some good information for, you know, field medicine, field first aid kits that, and it's not geared, excuse me, it's not geared towards veterinarians, it's geared towards handlers. So, you know, it does have some good information. Um, and then a really good resource is your regular veterinarian. They can definitely help um, teach you how to check for those vitals um, and having a good relationship with them will allow you to you know, call them if you're not sure what's, if it's emergency or not, um, they can help you triage if you have a good relationship with them. Absolutely. 
Well, we covered quite a bit today, went over a lot of resources, so we'll kind of compile all of that for our listeners. But is there anything that we didn't talk about that you do want to mention before we head out? I don't think so. Like I said, I'm still still new to the world of mushing and working as a veterinarian in the world of mushing. So if there is anything that people would like to add or teach me about, feel free to reach out and let me know. Um, I'm always happy to learn more. Um, but this is just kind of what I've learned between doing mushing things on my own and working in the ER, but there's still plenty to learn. There is, you know, and I think one of the things that I, I love about my profession too, which I know is the same for you guys needing to uh, stay up to date on science and earn CEUs is this idea of being a lifelong learner, you know, we'll always keep learning, but I think that all the information that you shared with us today will definitely help a lot of our listeners that might be new to running dogs, a lot of our listeners that are kind of just getting competitive or getting more involved in this sport, help help them prepare for these what ifs, because a lot of these situations that we can encounter on the trail or these emergencies, we don't necessarily expect them. Um, you know, I've had a couple scary moments on, on the trail with our dogs, and it's always good to kind of have that plan in place, like you mentioned, because when you start to worry about something or when you start to panic in the moment, our brain kind of, you know, will, will lose its ability to function and think clearly. And so having that plan in place, you can then kind of go into autopilot and, you know, make sure that you're doing what you need to kind of help, help your dog in that scenario. Absolutely. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule to chat with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really good time and it helped me think about my plan for when I'm out running my dogs. <laughs> yeah, isn't that true? Isn't that true? I, in my head, as, as we were chatting, I was thinking about my own emergency kit that's in my car and, you know, it's probably time to update that and add some more things and so yep. we can all, all have more fun out on the trails with our dogs. Beautiful. So until next time. Have fun chasing tails on the trails.